Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Today I'm with Dr. David King, an acute care surgeon at Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. King, thanks so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Wonderful. So uh, before we dive in, could you give us a quick background on yourself? Uh, well, I'm a um, civilian and um, military trauma surgeon. Uh, and, and as you probably know, over the past 10 or 15 years or so, the, um, the subspecialty of trauma surgery has evolved into um, uh, a new um, a new, newer specialty that we commonly describe as acute care surgery, which is all things emergency surgery because um, abdominal catastrophes often resemble um, uh, the, the, the similar physiology to bleeding trauma patients where trauma surgeons have some degree of expertise, particular, particularly as it relates to resuscitation, um, uh, abbreviated surgery, and um, subsequent ICU care. Almost all trauma and acute care surgeons are double boarded in general surgery and uh, surgical critical care. So generally, we regard ourselves as the um, the group that can um, that can do the operation uh, and take care of the patients uh, indefinitely afterwards, without having to rely on another specialty. Love it, love it. So so uh, today we'll be we'll be diving into an interesting topic of of uncontrolled bleeding and uh this new hemostatic agent referred to as rescue foam uh so dr king what are the cases that you're seeing as an acute care surgeon that uh have to do with uncontrolled bleeding uh internally sure so um by definition uh non-compressible hemorrhage is is a type of bleeding that cannot be controlled by simple external pressure alone. The, the uh, teleological and evolutionary example that I often give is um, if, if, you, if you cut your arm, the first thing, the first maneuver you do that is instinctual and pre-programmed in, into your hindbrain is to cover it with your hand and apply direct pressure. And um, that, that maneuver works almost all the time for almost all types of bleeding. Um, and within, within the human body, there are, there are cavities that are not accessible to direct pressure directly. So that's the left and right pleural spaces, the pericardial space and the intra-abdominal space. And in some cases, retroperitoneum and pelvis, uh, whereby it's impossible to apply direct pressure for bleeding in those locations. Uh, and, and hence we call that or impossible to apply direct pressure or compression. Hence, we refer to bleeding in those cavities as non-compressible hemorrhage. Uh, uh, what's interesting about so-called non-compressible hemorrhage is that um, uh, it becomes imminently compressible at the time of surgery. In fact, that's usually the, the first hemostatic maneuver uh, at laparotomy is if the, if the liver is shattered, usually we put our hands in it and we squeeze the liver to make it stop bleeding. Or if there is a stab wound to the vena cava, at laparotomy, the first first maneuver is to put your finger over the hole. That's applying direct pressure. Hmm. You can't do that through the abdominal wall, so we refer to, we refer to that type of bleeding as non-compressible hemorrhage. And um, uh, intra-abdominal non-compressible hemorrhage is what rescue foam is designed to intervene upon.
fascinating fascinating and uh that 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 really helps set a, a good stage for talking about this so let's let's use an example uh going off the the liver a liver laceration someone got in a car accident or etc so so what's the process right now without rescue foam the current process uh for you know from the start of the ambulance to then to the operating room of what you do now and then later we could talk about how that would change with rescue foam but what is it right now sure so the What's important to recognize is that the primary determinant of survival after trauma for patients who are bleeding is time to surgical hemostasis. So from the moment someone is injured, shot, stabbed, or a car crash, whatever, um, they start bleeding. The primary determinant of whether that person will live or die is the time it takes them from the moment of injury to get into the operating room and for the surgeon to have his hand on whatever is bleeding. Um, so if they're, if, and all the rest of the stuff we do is, um, uh, has very little effect on overall outcome. So things like resuscitation with, um, with crystalloids does not improve outcome. It frankly probably worsens outcome, uh, based on a recent study we've done. Um, uh, there is no, there are no good pharmacologic interventions. Uh, there's no way to apply direct pressure as we just talked about. So, um, uh, right now, the best resuscitation fluid for hemorrhaging trauma patients in the field is diesel fuel or 93-octane unleaded gasoline or whatever your ambulance runs on. Uh, the, the, the best thing you can do for a person who's bleeding internally is get them to the hospital to shorten the time from injury to surgical intervention. Uh, if, if, we imagine, oh, um, if we imagine a world where rescue foam is available in the pre-hospital environment and paramedics are trained to use it and trained to diagnose non-compressible hemorrhage, uh, you can imagine um, decreasing the time from um, injury to uh, cessation of bleeding down to, I mean, mere minutes. Right In the, in the United States, the, the, um, the average time from presentation at the hospital to uh, surgical intervention is a dismal 40 minutes or so, plus or minus a few, depending on where, what part of the a country you're in. Um, and that doesn't include the transport time uh, from the scene to the hospital. So wow. those are patients who are, who are likely bleeding for an hour before the surgeons get, their, get our hands on them. So if there were an intervention that we could use for non-compressible hemorrhage or apply, uh, apply to non-compressible hemorrhage, that could be delivered um, earlier in the patient's course. And earlier could be pre-hospital, it could be in the emergency department before we move off to the operating room and start uh, operating. But any intervention that shortens the, the time from, um, from injury to bleeding control is likely to improve outcome. And uh, rescue foam has the potential to reduce or arrest bleeding in non-compressible cavities, particularly the abdomen and pelvis. Hmm. Interesting. interesting. So to clarify right now, without rescue foam, uh, the best, the best thing is the quickest you could get to the operating room. There aren't any medications or, or techniques that are improving patient outcome, correct? There, there are, there are not many have been looked at. Um, most have 
either an inconsequential effect on outcome or worsen outcome. There's some pharmacologic therapies that uh, may slight marginally improve outcome. So um, using antifibrinolytics like tranexamic acid um, may improve outcome by, you know, single digit percent. So it's, it's small. Uh, and what we're looking for with rescue foam is not an incremental change, but a giant leap forward. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we've mentioned it a few times. How does rescue foam work and, and how did you get involved uh, with it? So, um, uh, rescue foam was a DARPA, uh, funded project, um, that was an academic and industry collaboration between, um, our hospital, the Massachusetts general hospital and Harvard medical school and a, uh, an industry partner of, um, of materials engineers. Uh, at Arsenal Medical in Watertown, Massachusetts, just across the river. And so together we applied for this, uh, we applied for a grant from DARPA uh, after a um, a, a broad agency announcement asking for ideas on uh, on ways to arrest uh, non-compressible hemorrhage, particularly in the battlefield environment, uh, but that was translatable to the civilian world. Uh, so we assembled a multidisciplinary team of doctors, surgeons, engineers, and so on, um, applied for that grant, received it, and um, essentially engineered a materials solution to uh, uh, intra-abdominal non-compressible exsanguination. Hmm. Hmm. Very interesting. So I, I read... And, and as, you, as you probably know, at DARPA... Uh, tends to fund high risk, high yield projects. So, oh, nice, <laughs> um, right? They they fund projects that on on the surface of it may seem absurd at first, uh, and then through a very rigorous vetting process, uh, these you know so called absurd ideas are narrowed down to those which might be scientifically feasible, and um, and usually the funding. Uh, is an ongoing process based on meeting particular milestones. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that, that, I love that you were used the word absurd. I love that word. Um, so I was reading uh, about I was reading the 2015 clinical trial, and then I also saw that there's a 2020 clinical trial. What's sort of been the time frame with this, and where are we at right now? So there have been literally thousands of um, of large animal experiments. Um, in, uh, in my laboratory, uh, in all manner of models of severe hemorrhage. And, um, right now the FDA has, uh, granted us approval to proceed with a first in human trial. That'll be a multi-center national trial, um, that I am the primary investigator of. Uh, and we expect that to kick off shortly. We, we already, we expected it to be already happening, but uh, COVID-19 has something to say about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so that, um, so you've done lots of animal trials. Was there human intervention in 2015? I, no, there no, there's been, oh. there's been no use in humans. Uh, 2015 was a, a very aggressive goal uh, to start our first in human experience, and um, uh, we just weren't ready for that back then. 
And you, you can you can probably find the clinicaltrials.gov entry uh, for the so-called revive trial, um, okay. which is going to be the first in human study. Yeah, I was I was looking at that, and we're here now, so I- exciting. So I'm trying to I'm trying to think of what. Uh, no, oh, I sorry, find, I find a, it all fascinating. Um, you asked it, how it works. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, uh, rescue foam is a two-part liquid that is injected into the intraperitoneal, intraperitoneal space through the umbilicus, through the placement of a 12 or 15 millimeter trocar through the umbilicus. The, uh, the two liquids are of differing viscosities and they're, they're two different chemicals that when mixed through a, a static mixing nozzle, which is within the trocar, uh, become a single liquid that expands to roughly... 39 and a half times its original volume and uh, creates conformational contact with uh, intra-abdominal organs. And, uh, and that contact allows for some degree of uh, direct pressure to be applied to, to bleeding structures. It's as if, um, it's as if you could reach in percutaneously and just put your finger on the hole in the vena cava after the stab wound, for example, except hmm. uh, rescue rescue foam as it expands but because it's a liquid that undergoes a phase change from a liquid to a solid, the, the, the liquid um, interacts with all the organs, the liquid wraps around it, and then as it solidifies, uh, applies gentle pressure to everything that it comes in contact with, just as you might do with your own hand at the time of surgery. That's amazing. That truly is amazing. Yeah, I was watching that video, and for anyone that hasn't heard of it or seen of it, it's like this, it's like white, and it expands, and it just like you said, compresses to it and like molds to it. So, uh, amazing. And then that's removed, uh, once surgery, after the surgical intervention begins, that's removed. And then you're able to start at a better Correct. spot. Than so the, the, the so-called foam implant, as it is sometimes referred to, uh, the, the, the foam, once it's injected, will stay in place until laparotomy. And then at the time of surgery, it's easily removed and, um, the surgeon can carry out the definitive hemorrhage control and repair of uh, organs and damage control, restore bowel continuity, stop bleeding, et cetera. Wonderful. Wonderful. So what, what do, what do you, what do we foresee in the future? Uh, you know, obviously don't want to get ahead of ourselves, uh, but how can this, uh, impact the future? So we think that the, there's potential for it to have a dramatic impact on, on the future, uh, particularly on the battlefield, but also in the civilian world. Um, as I said, right now, there is no intervention for non-compressible hemorrhage in the pre-hospital environment. So that is, that is certainly a vision that, that uh, one could entertain. Additionally, a fair number of, of patients uh, present to trauma centers as transfers from other hospitals that do not have uh, emergent surgical capability. So you can imagine a patient with a severe injury at a farther, far out hospital uh, that does not have a surgeon and blood bank and operating room available. Uh, you can imagine, say, an emergency medicine physician or just or the on-call surgeon who, who just doesn't have the, the, the team capable of managing complex bleeding trauma patients. Uh, that hospital could inject rescue foam temporarily stabilize the patient and then ship them to a level one trauma center where all the resources are available 
we can remove foam at laparotomy and um, deal with uh, definitive injury repair. Amazing. Uh, the yeah. same can be said on the battlefield, right? Um, uh, if, a, if a soldier is injured far forward, you can imagine a, a medic being able to inject rescue foam so that patient will survive to, to arrive at a uh, roll two or roll three uh, surgical capability. Uh, we know from the last uh, 20 years in the global war on terror that um, if you can arrive at a roll two or roll three surgical capability, uh, the chances are of survival are very, very high if you can arrive with vital signs. So hmm. if you can arrive alive, your chances of staying alive are extraordinarily good. And um, far too many, far too many soldiers, sailors, and airmen die before they reach a roll two or roll three surgical capability. And rescue foam has uh, the potential to um, uh, impact the what we call the died of wounds rate. So those that die before they reach a surgical capability. Yeah, that's amazing to hear. I yeah, I, I hope I hope we get there. Um, so I something I was curious about personally is someone working on an EMT right now. Would you foresee paramedics using it on the spot, or would it not be until you're at uh, a hospital waiting for? All right, like when would would uh, paramedics use it at spot of the emergency? Right. So to be clear, that the, the clinical trial is an in hospital trial, so it'll be given in the oh, emergency okay. department. Oh, okay. So it'd be in hospital. Okay. That's that's the um, that's what will occur during the, the clinical trial um, for a variety of reasons. But you you can imagine a pre hospital provider being trained well enough to be able to make the intervention. So rescue foam is um, in some ways uh, conceptually not dissimilar uh, from uh, the vision of pre-hospital reboa. So that's resuscitative endovascular balloon occlusion of aorta. Those it, it, They both seem very tempting as pre-hospital hemorrhage control maneuvers. And we know that we can teach people like paramedics uh, to, to administer rescue foam. We know we can teach them how to access the common femoral artery and and put a uh, Reboa balloon in. But there's another piece to this that's probably equally or more important. And um, uh, it's a concept I recently wrote about in the Journal of Special Operations Medicine. Uh, and that is, we, we're, I think we get distracted and, and focus on some of the wrong, the wrong things sometimes. So the, the focus shouldn't necessarily be on can we teach someone to reboa in the pre-hospital environment or can we teach someone to rescue foam in the pre-hospital environment? You have to know who to rescue foam. And mm -hmm. right now, the only way to diagnose non-compressible hemorrhage in the pre-hospital environment is uh, ultrasonography. So it is misguided to say, well, let's just train everyone to put rescue foam in. We can do that. We know we can do that. Uh, what we also have to train those people to do is to be expert ultrasonographers because uh, in order to administer rescue foam or insert a Reboa balloon, uh, you have to correctly diagnose which compartment uh, the non-compressible bleeding is in. So you can position the balloon appropriately uh, in the aorta or administer rescue foam into the abdomen um, for abdominal hemorrhage and not for someone who's dying of a hemothorax or, or a tension pneumothorax. Mm -hmm. And the only easy, safe, and fast way to make those diagnoses, which is really just, which really just speaks 
do patient selection, who's the right patient for these interventions, who's the right patient for rescue foam. It means we have to train those any any provider who's going to be administering rescue foam um, uh, to be expert uh, or near expert ultrasonographers. And the reason I say expert or near expert is because, uh, of course, the guiding principle here for any medical intervention, first and foremost, has to be do no harm. So we we cannot we cannot rescue foam anyone who doesn't need rescue foam, or that is someone who doesn't already need a laparotomy because the foam has to be removed. So if you give it to someone accidentally who doesn't have intra-abdominal hemorrhage, you've committed that patient to an operation that they didn't need to begin with. Hmm. And that is, that is doing substantial harm in the big picture, which means we have to be sure that we're selecting the right patients. And right now, at least the only way to be sure is to be facile with the ultrasound probe. And I would argue that that is a, probably a more difficult skill to teach and retain than is putting a trocar in and administering rescue foam. Um, others may disagree, but either way, there you have to maintain both skill sets in order to to imagine exporting this to the pre-hospital or so-called paramedical environment or the battlefield environment. You cannot roll out with rescue foam in your rucksack or on your ambulance or rescue unit without an ultrasound right next to it and the ability to use it. That's great. That's really great to point out, and that. As someone wanting to go into medicine, I, I think about having to do multiple things well and, and, and see it from a wider picture. So I like that a lot. So time frame, what are we looking at time frame uh, if everything goes to plan to where it's widespread? Uh, oh, I, 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 the, the clinical trial, I, I suspect, will uh, likely take half a year or more. Um, and... Right now, uh, that hasn't started yet due to COVID. Um, so, you know, I, I, I don't see, I don't see uh, realistic, uh, widespread first in human use happening until we're relatively sure that the second wave of COVID is over. But because it's because first in human use of rescue foam will be a, a study, a clinical study. It will require multiple study staff in the trauma bay, and um, and right now that is a substantial putting many people all in the same room for the evaluation of uh, of any trauma patient puts all those providers at risk uh, for COVID nineteen infection. Many of the procedures we do emergently in the trauma bay are aerosolizing procedures. Right, we manipulate the airway, we intubate, we perform cricothyroidotomies and tracheostomies. Um, we drain body fluids all over the place. So, um, uh, th th this can't roll forward until we have a, a, a better grip on the, um, on, uh, on the COVID-19 volume. Hmm. Hmm. And, and is so, and of course, because our trauma patients are not pre-screened for COVID naturally, you have to assume that everyone presenting of course has it. Yeah. And, and you have to you have to mitigate that risk in some way. Yeah. So let's say like a year or two down the road, the clinical trial, you know, shows significant uh, improvements in outcome. Uh, when would when would we see other places starting to use rescue foam? Uh, so that's a good question. Um, I, I think the answer to that will largely depend on how the FDA interprets the, the clinical trial. Uh, 
because certainly that kind of thing cannot proceed without um, without FDA approval. Um, you know, obviously, I I, I wouldn't be um, a long term investigator of rescue foam if if I didn't believe it was useful on its own merit. So I expect the clinical trial will be successful, and I would hope that uh, uh, soon after conclusion of that. Uh, rescue foam will become uh, commercially available. Love it. Love it. Well, uh, that's phenomenal. Uh, Dr. King, thank you so much for your time. Uh, really interesting to, to listen to this before uh, these trials take place. And maybe a couple years down the road, it'll be uh, everyone will be using rescue foam. And so it's really cool to hear this uh, at this time and you being on the forefront of this. Cool. Well, thanks for having me on the podcast. Absolutely.